You're listening to a podcast from STI. Well, welcome to the STI podcast. My name is William Wong. I'm one of the guest editors for this special issue. I'm a clinical associate professor from the University of Hong Kong. And with me is Tiu, calling from South Africa. Tiu. Yes, I'm, I'm another one of the co-guest editors of this special issue. Um, I'm an assistant professor of global health at the Harvard School of Public Health, the Department of Global Health and Population, and the senior epidemiologist at a large um, Wellcome Trust-funded research site in South Africa, the Africa Center for Health and Population Studies. Wow, very impressive. Um, Till you remember about a year ago when we first talked about what we should be doing for this special issue. At that time, we were thinking there's a lot of advancement over the last 20, 30 years on the diagnosing and managing HIV infections, such as uh, VCT, cocktail therapy. But we think that for a disease with uh, such an impact on health and global investment, we should really doing the whole academic world and also a lot of policy makers a lot of good if we can just take a stock take now and reflect on how these services could be best delivered through different systems and to find some ways forward so that we would be able to use all these resources effectively. Yes, um, thank you, William. And um, I think in the special issue of um, STI, sexually transmitted infections, we have um, several sets of papers that somehow cluster together quite nicely and offer different perspectives on the question how to deliver ART at scale in developing countries and developed countries and to ensure good patient outcomes at minimum costs if possible. Maybe if I can start the, the first perspective, the patient perspective is maybe a good point to start because that is the person we care about, the person in need of treatment and the person successfully utilizing treatment. And of course, in ART, we need to ensure long-term retention in care and long-term adherence in order to ensure good treatment outcomes. Yeah, I think that's a very good idea. So tell us which papers that, uh, that attract your attention. The two papers from the patient perspective, which speak to each other in quite a nice and complementary way, is one quantitative study by Susan Cleary, Stephen Birch, and Musa Moshabella, and Helen Schneider from South Africa, and then a qualitative study in the same sites by Jana Fried, Bronwyn Harris, and John Iles. Um, the quantitative study, I think, demonstrates very powerfully the amount of resources that patients need to expend both in time and financial outlays to access, to utilize antiretroviral treatment on an ongoing basis in rural and urban South Africa. And it also shows that there is a quite substantial differential between um, hurdles to utilization in rural areas versus in urban areas. And those um, this differential manifests itself in substantially longer travel times. A patient in one of the two rural sites in this study in Clavisa and Bushbuckwich in South Africa spends on average an hour or over an hour to go to the place where his or her ART are delivered and that's a journey this patient needs to take once per month by South African treatment guidelines. A patient in the urban area spends half an hour or less to 
access ART. And that is reflected as well in the expenditures. A patient in rural sites spends more than 40 rand in accessing ART um, per clinic visit, and a patient in urban settings less than 10 rand. These are um, substantial amounts for poor populations in South Africa. Um, interestingly, the rural patients also feel that they are treated with less respect on average by the clinic staff than the urban patients, with a third of rural patients reporting that they feel patients are not treated respectfully in the services, and one-sixth of urban patients reporting this issue. But these quantitative numbers tell a very powerful and very generalizable potentially story, but they don't give us some of the details that we can learn when we talk to patients. And Jana Fried and colleagues in a qualitative study conducted in-depth interviews in patients who utilized ART in rural and urban sites in South Africa, and they show how, on the one hand, there is hope in ART and how patients recover health and how they experience ART not only as giving them health, but also a social and economic future and their family members a future in being able to access education and, and gaining incomes. But then they also show in examples how patients struggle to continue over the long term to utilize ART. And just one example here is a patient who describes that she feels disrespected by a nurse when she goes to a clinic and is sent home because she's late to an appointment and tells the nurse that she will stop taking ART and that the nurse is now responsible for her health status because she refused to serve her and treat her with respect. This patient tells a story of falling ill once she stopped ART and realizing then once she is sick that actually it is herself that makes herself sick. She comes back to the clinic she says, I came back here and the nurse welcomed me back even without my apology. She has realized that in order to, in the long term, access ART, she needs to be able to overcome these hurdles on an ongoing basis, but she felt, feels now, through this experience, prepared to do so. So I think there's a powerful example here how human interaction in health services can make a difference in how patients feel they're able and empowered to access ART over their life course. Wow, this uh, sounds very interesting. I actually spotted a paper by uh, Michael Keat looking at the Australian uh, experience. There seem to be a lot of urban and rural differences. In the past, a lot of uh, HIV-positive patients actually concentrate in the cities. But as nowadays, a lot of people you know, moved out in the rural area and want to, to remain there. You know, looking after these people can be quite a challenge. And interestingly, in Australia, since it's such a huge country, they actually involve some general practitioners in managing the sort of HIV patients. And they seem to have pretty good and positive results over there. Looking at uh, Michael's paper, it is a, a qualitative study uh, involving 24 professionals. So they are looking at slightly from a different angle, uh, asking the doctors uh, uh, or health professionals their perspective and, and problems they actually uh, been confronted. 
There were some interesting quotes which I want to sort of uh, share with you. For example, one of the doctors said, no other places in, in the world allow general practitioner to do this level of work and to get this special authority for the prescribing, uh, referring to ART. However, to do that, obviously, there are a lot of resources put into this uh, and support, and also a lot of um, training required uh, for this GP to get the qualifications. But the advantage of this is the sort of long-established trusting relationship that the doctors would have with the patient. Coming back to the reason why we want to do this special issue, how is the best way that we can uh, deliver HIV care? There are two papers I think is most relevant in this special issue. One is by Sweeney and uh, her team, the cost and efficiency of integrating HIV and AIDS service with other health services. Another paper is by myself, actually, looking at the role of general practitioner uh, in providing the HIV service. Uh, again, a systematic literature review. The first one that I mentioned actually took more on the cost point of view. And uh, what they find in that study is a lot of sort of different services provided through, for example, uh, by the general practitioners or uh, with primary care or with the family planning service, some community-based clinics. It seems to be quite an effective way, at least cost-effective way and feasible way, to deliver this service. Uh, the one that I looked at principally using the primary care integrated models versus the sort of hospital-based model on its own, uh, primary care was found to be at least clinically as effective in HIV counseling, testing, and treatment, and to a lesser degree, prevention. And I suspect that's because the prevalence in this sort of a, a lower prevalence area using such a setting to develop the or deliver the prevention work may not be as effective. So screening for, for HIV at uh, a primary care level seems to be quite cost-effective, and there are at least no adverse clinical outcomes reported in this approach. Looking at the whole range of papers, we should be spending more efforts in the future looking at how these services can be developed and delivered. William, thank you for these descriptions of um, particular country approaches. The last perspective is a more comparative and global perspective, where three papers look at the donor contributions to health services in developing countries for HIV and how national governments can commit and have committed in the past to contributing and um, in national responses focusing on the HIV epidemic. The first by Karen Kapoor examines official development assistance for health and HIV in particular. And um, Karen starts out by chronicling the increase in funding for HIV, reviewing OECD records, and she finds a trend that we probably all know about um, from below 2 billion US dollars into 
thousand to around eight billion US dollars in 2009 by OECD countries to HIV um, treatment and prevention in developing countries. And at the same time, she shows that the composition of official development assistance for health has changed from about 20% for HIV in 2007 to about 60% in 2007. And now in the past years, most recently, a stagnation and slight decline in the relative contribution of all donor spending on health for HIV. And Karen Kapern then goes on to argue that um, this has led to an increased focus on efficiency, but that this focus has been quite narrow on short-term productive efficiency. That is, how much can we increase health gains and the impact through improving the productive efficiency of currently funded resources. And she argues that a broader perspective on efficiency is probably helpful and will improve our ability to continue delivering high-quality care for very large numbers of people in developing countries by looking more at allocative efficiency that is within the HIV sector or within the health sector, which particular resources should receive what proportion of allocations. For instance, we could, of course, shift the delivery of services from more highly skilled and more expensive health workers to less skilled and less expensive health workers. But we need to understand the outcome implications of such shifts. And then she argues that we should also be concerned with distributional issues and account in our efficiency measures for um, social values that we might attribute to the more vulnerable. For instance, the society might feel that poor populations should receive a higher proportion um, of ART um, services funded by donor aid or by governments than wealthier populations or some other measure of vulnerability might lead us to reweight our um, measures of efficiency gain by considering um, how much these populations who we potentially care most about are able to utilize ART. And finally, I think she argues very convincingly that we also need to consider efficiency in the long term and consider feedback mechanisms and dynamic issues in efficiency when, for instance, treatment can also act as prevention and preventive services compete in a sense with treatment but also come together in treatment as pre prevention um, in improving health outcomes in populations who currently are or potentially are in the future HIV infected. So I think she describes a very um, interesting set of broadening views on efficiencies. The, the second paper describes, and that is a paper by David Bloom, Salal Humer and I, how donor FOTSI have shifted from delivering ART and other HIV treatment and care services vertically, that is disease specific and separated from the other health services that are de delivered in a country that is with their own financing, their own monitoring and evaluation team, their own supply chains often in their own facilities, their dedicated ART facilities with 
dedicated staff that only de delivers ERT to increasingly horizontal delivery integrated with, for instance, TB care, but also with general health systems, and that there's really an aspiration to um, improve and strengthen health systems through HIV delivery and through funding for HIV with a few um, to long-term sustainability of ensuring access to ART in the long term when potentially in the future donor contributions to ART will start to decrease. And this shift in financing ART delivery structures is um, accompanied maybe unintentionally by a second shift which is from evaluating outputs such as the number of people on treatment which, of course, when you think about ERT as an emergency response in developing countries, maybe what initially you need to focus on, to evaluation of true impact. And true impact meaning empirically measured impact against a counterfactual potentially, rather than um, estimated impact based on output indicators, such as numbers of people on treatment in a mathematical model. And these two shifts, I think, are both meaningful and very understandable, but we argue they run to some extent counter to each other because a horizontally structured delivery makes impact evaluation harder. For instance, the number of outcomes you would like to measure in a horizontally delivered ERT program is potentially larger. The number of sources of financing that contribute to the funding of these services is larger and thus it will be harder in economic evaluation to assess the costs of treatment and care for HIV. Um, also the study designs that we have may be much more limited when ART are horizontally delivered versus when they are vertically delivered. For instance, it is probably harder to randomly allocate maybe over space and time in a step batch dis design um, ART scale up when it is within the general health services or very well integrated with other services than when it is a separated dedicated disease specific delivery. And we will also probably have much longer lag times from an effect of a horizontal intervention such as training of health workers who can treat all types of diseases to an outcome in HIV infected patients than the vertical program that starts with the delivery of ART. And finally, we argue that potentially in horizontal delivery, it will be harder for evaluators and researchers to convince frontline staff and national policymakers to contribute and support impact evaluation, frontline staff, of course, because in a horizontal system, they have many more responsibilities than just ART, and national policymakers, possibly because they feel more responsible for the general health system than they feel for a largely donor-funded vertical system of ART delivery, and thus might feel that they do not want to grant researchers access to um, data, but would like to be in control of these evaluation themselves, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but might actually lead to less impact evaluation when services for HIV-infected populations are horizontally delivered. And the last paper by Alison Goldberg, Ashley Fox, Radhika Gore and I looks at indicators of political commitment to respond 
to national HIV epidemics. What can we say and what do we know about how committed governments are to fight HIV and to diminish suffering due to HIV and to prevent HIV. We discuss different options for studies to validate these indicators. Despite their public availabilities, these indicators, we argue, have not been rigorously validated. And it is, of course, important for research, for policy, for advocacy to know that the indicators that we use to, for instance, rank countries by political commitment validly capture some dimension of political commitment. And we go through different approaches to validate indicators by looking at their content, by looking at the response processes when we interview people about political commitment in their countries, what goes on in respondents' minds in answering that question, by looking at the internal structures of political commitment indicators, how they relate to each other, hopefully in um, ways that are predicted by theory and how they relate to other variables and especially to outcomes in fighting the HIV epidemic, such as life years gained in people who are HIV infected. And finally, how in their use these indicators can lead to good consequences, which of course they will not, if they don't valid, validly capture an underlying concept of political commitment. I totally agree that um, how the money is to be spent on HIV is a, a hugely important question. And especially, I think, in the current Soviet economic environment, we can see that you know, the donors are likely to, to cut on this kind of support. That's why I want to round up this discussion by introducing the last paper by Claire Foreman and, and the London Specialized Commissioning Group, maintaining cost-effective access to antiretroviral drug therapy through a collaborative approach to drug procurement, consensus treatment guidelines, and regular audit. I think this paper is particularly relevant. What it did is to actually get the patients involved uh, in the whole process of deciding what is the best drugs. Through this process, they involved all the uh, London lead clinicians with the people living with HIV. They also produced a patient leaflet to explain the whole process so that they actually deliver the, the message to all the users and also recorded it, uh, the outcomes. And there was also a, they also did a planned audit. And in this model, uh, they predicted they could, if it's disseminated nationally, save 8 to 10 million pounds uh, in two years, which is quite a significant uh, savings. So it is a very interesting way, very innovative way to go, and I think it is for, uh, for the future of HIV management, we should get the people living with HIV uh, more involved in the whole process. And I think that's really a very good paper to, to round up our discussion. It's great to talk to you today. I think we had a very uh, interesting discussion. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.